out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the guitarist, songwriter, bass player, singer, and also cyclist. It is the one and only Paul Rudolph, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. One-time member of The Deviants with Nick Farron, plus The Pink Fairies, Hawkwind, Brian Eno, and lots, lots more. Anyway, this is the interview. You're going to find out more about all that exciting and uh, interesting creative stuff in this interview. So take notes, I will test you at the end. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. It's a classic question. Anyway, Paul, it's over to you. I'd say my musical awakening in life uh, would have been, uh, I think I was probably 13 or 14 years old sitting in the base sitting in the basement uh, of my parents house uh, where I used to have my guitar and you know I used to practice along the records and stuff and I happened to turn on a little portable transistor radio I'd bought recently with money from my paper round and I heard the Beatles doing she loves you and went what the hell is that <laughs> so that was like that was like so it's a real pivotal moment <laughs> yes I, I would imagine actually and were your parents kind of interested in music the arts or anything like that or were they just didn't have time for it my dad plunked on the guitar but my mom was was actually a church pianist and she played violin in a, a an orchestra in North America called the Bell Telephone orchestra who used to you know they were basically used to go on tv at christmas time although she was actually a registered nurse but she was very supportive of the of the music and uh, my dad was less supportive uh when i turned 16 and started growing my hair long yes it does it does happen doesn't it i mean did you um <laughs> And were you, and was it in Vancouver, your, your childhood? No, my childhood, uh, I grew up outside of Vancouver on a, a little uh, peninsula. You had to take a ferry to get there. Mm -hmm. So uh, the biggest town in, in the area was Gibson's, a place called Gibson's. And we actually lived 10 miles down the road from Gibson's in a remote uh, pulp mill town, which is where I grew up. Right, blimey. So, because I sort of grew up in the countryside in East Anglia, so it was quite, it was very rural. So there wasn't that many people about, there was not many people to sort of play with when you're that age. I mean, what was your, what, did you have quite an interesting idyllic childhood? Was it quite enjoyable? Uh, reasonably so. Uh, thanks, thanks to music. Yes, so, <laughs> so, absolutely. So you were the same, roughly. I think it's the same year you were born as um, people like David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead, weren't you? Uh, that was around that time. You were really similar age to them, 
I, I think I'm older than Lemmy. I was born in 1947. Yes, I can't remember. I know him and Bowie shared the same year, and it was either 46 or 47 they were born. And oh, yeah, okay. It was kind of in that ballpark, actually. So when you were got to that kind of magical age, which was the kind of, the uh, well, during the early 60s, did you start to sort of, you obviously heard the Beatles, did you start picking up on the kind of, the kind of the wave of kind of, you know, popular music that was starting to happen? Uh, certainly the, the music that was happening in, in Britain, for sure. Um, I was like really into um, Yardbirds, um, you know, obviously the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and always was a big uh, fan and influenced by uh, Chuck Berry, uh, Dwayne Eddy, you know, some of the American country country people. Yes. And then, of course, when 1966-1967 happened, then it was all the psychedelic bands from California that were, you know, needless to say, totally cool. <laughs> Actually... <clears throat> confession time i don't really know many psychedelic bands from canada this is this is kind of a horrendous thing to admit on air isn't it but um you know 1967 summer of love you know you had you know in january that year you know the gathering of the tribes in in golden gate san francisco then in i think it was either june july in the alley pally you had the 14 hour technicolor dream with people like you know pink floyd arthur bryan i think he went to every event and yeah it was yoko ono there was all these happenings so i kind of i've got that i've got quite a good grip on that and the barry miles scene and i international times but what was the canadian sort of psychedelic scene like uh, the canadian psychedelic scene was intense um I played at the first ever Easter Bee Inn in 1967. And in 1967, the band I was in, uh, which was with uh, uh, another Canadian and some draft dodgers from California, we actually won the, you know, what, what, what's called the British Columbia Battle of the Bands. So we were the first long hairs to actually win the big band competition and we run won a recording contract and um you know a few other little little frivolous things yes but 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 it's good it was this the mid the the midnighters no the the midnighters was the band i had in gibson's mm. but this was called the fast flying vestibule the ffv which actually never unfortunately never recorded but they were like the spearheading band of the psychedelic movement in, you know, on the West Coast in Canada. Yes, because we heard, you know, it's got documented, you know, people like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, both from Canada. They both had polio. Did you also have polio? I can't. I also had polio. Yes, and that must have been, I mean, it's something that we don't have anymore, like thalidomide which was another strange one in the 70s well before the, but i do remember seeing the little blue cars around great britain and being a bit confused my my parents trying to explain to me what it was all about which was weird but yeah so so what was the i mean that must have been a horrendous time for you and your parents i mean what what was the kind of experience and the post experience like 
the experience, like I had, I don't know, four months in the iron lung. And I honestly don't remember a lot. I, mean, I remember being in the iron lung. And uh, um, part of it's a fog, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from heaven polio. Because uh, I remember I was at my grandma's house and suddenly I couldn't hold a spoon. And the next thing I remember was being in the iron lung. You know, it was like totally traumatic. Yes. And then, uh, you know, once uh, once I recovered, um, I had my arm in a sling for a couple of years. And then at nine, I remember, you know, a life-changing moment would have been Christmas when I was nine years old. And my parents pulled a box out from behind the, you know, the uh, Chesterfield. And lo and behold, it was my first guitar. And it just, you know, it just, I I just figured out a way to play it by hanging my disabled arm over it and discovered the uh, passion and joy of music. My God, you were nine. That was, that was quite the present, wasn't it? It was awesome. <laughs> that was amazing. So then as the sort of 60s started to, I mean, just going back to that, did you sort of, did, did your parents give you, you know, little lessons of like how to play chords and how to structure songs or anything like that? No, the, uh, the uh, in the box with the guitar and the strap and the plectrum was a book that was about 15 pages with some basic, uh, uh, theory of music and lots of black and white photographs of where you put your fingers for the chords and I just taught myself god that's amazing so that god so that was 19 that was like the late 50s so you you would have got that sort of even before you saw the Beatles on telly so you would oh yeah because I know with, you know, both funny enough, I mean, I do love David Bowie, obviously, because <laughs> my first singular and first album and all that stuff. And also, you know, I've grown to love Lemmy and Motorhead. But they, whenever they mentioned their musical hero, they both said Little Richard, you know, and then it was all the other, you know, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran. Did, did sort of people like that sort of also float into your consciousness aura? For sure. Uh, Eddie Cochran, the big bopper, Buddy Holly... Richie Valens, uh, all of those people were very, very much on my radar. Uh, Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, I liked. Um, and uh, Elvis, in a way. Nice. I remember the first, first time Elvis was on the Ed Sullivan show. I remember my mom sitting on the couch screaming like a teenager at the television. And I was curious. I sat down and saw Elvis and thought, hey, this guy's kind of kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Was your mum shouting because of happiness or just because she wanted him off? No, she, happiness. She loved it. Oh, good. She just yes. thought it was so good. <laughs> oh, that's a nice image and nice memory, actually. Yes, there you go. So as um, I mean, as, as the sort of 60s were progressing, obviously you were at sort of perfect age to start to discover it. When was when did you go to your sort of first kind of rock concert and kind of have that experience, which is often quite memorable? Though you were in a band, so you probably somehow, you know, got a fast track on that, didn't you? 
my first big rock concert was Dave Clark Five at the uh, PNE. It was sort of a, the PNE. It was a sort of a big, you know, open year-round fairground, and uh, had the Dave Clark Five were playing. And I remember we'd come in from the country, uh, you know, and uh, to see the the concert. I think I was about sixteen at the time. And the guy who managed our band in Gibson's, uh, he was the manager because he had a Beatles haircut. We took a taxi, and when we got outside, uh, when we got started to get out of the taxi outside the venue, we were mobbed because people thought we were the Dave Clark Five. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was it was cool. It was cool. And also, I think he was probably the most sus. Was he one of those, the most sus kind of musician ever to walk? Didn't he understand contracts and sort of knew how to sort of, you know, negotiate the business of the music industry and came up smiling where everyone else just came up broke and disheartened? I kind of, I seem to remember the story of the Dave Clark Five and the main man who was just very clever on music. But there you go. Yeah. It's a you know, I think you're. I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the um, business part of it. You know, I mean, I, I, certainly for me, I just wanted to play music and have fun, yes. and play with people, and it never struck me at a very early age that it was, you know, if, uh, I never really understood the business part of it. And then as time went on, realized that a lot of the people in the business weren't musicians or played in bands. They were basically just suits wanting to get their foot in the door to make money out of it. And, mm. uh, you know, I think for a lot of bands, it, it left a bit of a, a sour taste. Yes, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of that going around in the music. I know music industry, I know there's a great quote by Hunter S. Thompson, isn't there, about the the music business is a shallow money trench, you know, where good good people die like dogs. And, you know, I can't quite remember the whole quote, but, you know, it's just, it's all run by sort of, yeah, embezzlers and fraudsters and people like that. Anyway, it's a funny quote by Hunter S. Thompson. I should have rehearsed that. But anyway, look, as the <laughs> 60s progressed on, did you start to sort of get excited by the wonderful world? I guess you did, of uh, Timothy, you know, the, the kind of tune, tune in, turn on, turn up, uh, drop out kind of philosophy of Timothy Leary and the sort of psychedelic world. Did that start to sort of grab you by 67, 68? Uh, it started to grab me certainly by 67. And, uh, you know, I think probably every day for almost a year, <clears throat> I had visits with you know, Timothy Leary's uh, uh, products, we'll call them. Yes. As did most other people at the time on the West Coast. Yes, we... <laughs> I mean, we used to play, we used to play some of our gigs with a lot of the band laying on the stage playing because they couldn't actually stand up. 
<laughs> but it was good honest music <laughs> yes and and i would imagine you got a good sort of vibe going with your community so when did you start to because when did you relocate to london because this is kind of a moment isn't it that's a life-changing experience i would imagine just a guess yeah uh 19 i guess it was the beginning of 1969 right i moved to london that was quite, I mean, nowadays, you know, you can just look at the internet, you can even do Google Maps, walk down the you know, street in a virtual sort of way to sort of get an idea. But then, you know, adventures like that are huge, aren't they? So, so was this kind of a massive moment in life or were you just taking too many drugs and didn't really think about it? No, massive moment in life. I was playing in, in a, a blues band and then uh, to keep, you know, it makes actually make money to buy food uh, was playing in a country band we we're playing at a strip club and um, the person one of my best friends in high school had moved to London a year before I, I left and he wrote me a letter and he said I don't know what you're doing he said but if you're not you know if you're not doing anything he said come to London he said I'm living with this band called the social deviants on top of the Shaftesbury Theatre in London. They're looking for a guitar player. And if you come over and you don't like the band, there's lots of other bands to play with. And I thought, why not? There's not, you know, I, I, I wasn't, there just wasn't enough happening in the Vancouver music scene at that time for me that was interesting. Mm. So I basically, you know, put all my clothes into my bass and my guitar case, got on the plane, went to London. Uh, my friend and Mick Farron and a few people met me at the airport. And I stayed with them in the Shaftesbury Theatre and played in the band. And, uh, you know, that was the sort of start of it all. Brilliant. Who, who, who was your contact in London who, who sort of gave you the, the kind of the letter home? Uh, that was Jamie Mandelkow who actually helped the band quite a bit. He was a good, you know, he was a friend of, of Mick Farron's. Yes. And Jamie eventually wrote a book called Buttons, The Making of a President, which is about the first, you know, Hells Angels president in London. Oh, blimey. Now, was me thinking you're going to mention JFK or something like that. <laughs> right. I will, I'll try. Is it still available, the book? Now I'm going off track here. Uh, you'd have to find it used somewhere because at some point it was it was banned due to um, I don't don't remember whether it was violence or sexual contact, but mm, it probably is. It's probably it probably wouldn't get past much many people. <laughs> <laughs> but he used you know the uh, buttons himself used to come to Shaftesbury. Uh, Avenue, and uh, that's where I first met uh, Sonia Christina, who I still stay in contact with. And you know, we all used to go to the pub with Jermaine Greer and all sorts of people. Is that the woman from Curved Air? Yeah. Oh God, I did an interview with her quite recently. Yeah, she was my first girlfriend when I moved to London. I didn't mention that in the interview. Damn. I didn't know. We didn't, we didn't get into her, you know, relationships. But yes, if only I had. Those, that oh, she's a lovely lady. 
She's amazing. Still, I think they've taught, they've got a tour booked and all, all sorts. So, um, well, the, yeah, their first uh, their first gig was two nights ago. Right, you know more than me now, and I didn't interview her. Um, yes, because Stuart Copeland suddenly appeared on drums. Good old Stuart. My God. So look, Mick Farron. You meet Mick Farron. Was he like anybody else that you'd met in Canada, Vancouver? Was it was it was it a culture shock, or was it like, yeah, this is cool. The drugs are just the same and we were all rocking. It was it was in it was interesting because you know I hadn't uh, Mick was very political. He was, wasn't he? He was a bit he was handy. very political. And but I liked the idea that he was a rabble rouser. He liked to sort of continually poke the envelope to, you know, get a reaction. And um you know, he wasn't, he was a great, he was a great friend. He wasn't a good singer, but by the same token, on a good night, he had a way to deliver uh, himself, kind of like, you know, uh, Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan or, um, you know, he had a way of, of, of projecting himself in a way that, uh, that, that worked. Yes, amazing. I mean, I have seen some incredible footage of him and you might you may have been one of those people in some studio sort of ranting at the you know presenter. I can't remember if it was uh, Nicholas Nickleby. No, it's not Nicholas. So anyway, he stands up and starts ranting. And there was a whole documentary on the Isle of Wight Festival where he's kind of bringing down the, the kind of the wall and sort of wanting to make it a free festival. So at that stage, had had that become had you become quite a lot more political when you turned up in you know and spent time in london than you had been in canada i was never i was never much into the the politics of it um you know um i basically i wanted to play and um you know we used to do in in deviants and pink fairies we did, we used to do lots of free benefit gigs for you know women's shelters and all sorts of different causes yes but i was never i was never that much into the the political side of it wasn't uh um you know i didn't i didn't really get into it that much i never found it never you know resonated with me um the um You know, being an old uh, a hippie, I think I just wanted to get along with people, play music, um, you know, be honest and truthful and uh, and have fun. Yes. Well, you know, for me, it was more important to play music, have fun. And the money was the last thing on my mind. <laughs> Can you because were you on their third album which was called deviance three was this the the first time you went into the the studio with them uh first time yeah the first time i went into the studio with them was the the album with the nun on the cover which i guess was the third one right with the ice cream nice billy the monster that's the first track isn't it and did yeah. you and was was this the first time you'd been in a studio with any band or had you done bits already no i'd done i'd done some recording in vancouver um 
and then the actually the first uh, when when I was first uh, staying with Mick, the Deviants were doing a thing with Transatlantic Records, but we hadn't gone into the studio yet as a band, and the uh, head of Transatlantic Records was in London to record an Irish folk rock group called the Johnstons. Oh, yes. And they couldn't find a bass player. And um, Nat Joseph, his name was, happened to ask Mick, said, you know anybody who plays bass? And he says, well, yeah, he said, this, this guy Paul's just arrived from Canada. I guess he plays bass because he has one. So I went down to the studio with my bass and they gave me a basic chord chart. And, uh, you know, a couple of hours later, handed me a check for session fees. Yes, which was quite so, amazing. <laughs> you had made I've it. I've still got that, that single as well. What was it called? Uh, this is my house. Did you... I mean, because on the third album with the Deviant, well, the, the one with the Nun, because you compose most of the tracks, don't you? Uh, quite a few of them. Uh, did that come quite, e you know, like easily to you? I mean, this is quite a jump. You, you know, you're relocated, first kind of band, and suddenly you're composing all the songs. It was It was fairly easy because a lot of the... You know, certainly with Deviants, Pink Fairies, and to a point, Hawkman, but certainly Deviants and Pink Fairies, a lot of the writing was just around riffs that, that came up when, when we were uh, rehearsing. And, you know, I still, you know, the, the, I think that the Pink Fairies was a very communal band. And because a lot of these ideas would present themselves when we were you know, uh, rehearsing and farting around. Yes. Um, everybody was considered an equal part of what was being created. So everybody shared all the royalties for everything. And it was very much a group effort. Yes. And how did the band, because, you know, having done this kind of show for quite a long time, most bands have quite a sort of a firm narrative, you know, like I've got it down to nearly four or five years, you know, the honeymoon phase, a couple of albums, a bit of touring, and then suddenly by the third album, it's all over. And if any bands ever go to America, they always seem to come back broken. I mean, in the 80s, which, you know, I suppose I've focused a lot, you know, John Peel was a great kind of, you know, he was one of those people who helped launch a lot of, you know, careers. And, you know, I suppose you had gatekeepers, didn't you, in the music industry in those days, you know, music press you know everything was a bit more limited unlike the internet now so what was the, what was the kind of how did the the uh, the deviants come to a bit of an end at that stage uh the d well the the um the girl i used to live with in vancouver contacted me in london and said would the deviants like to do uh come to vancouver and play three nights and you know, the promoter who uh, was doing it, I used to play at his coffee shop in Vancouver, um, offered us three nights at a theater in Vancouver. So basically we got it all together. He sent us plane tickets, the Deviants went to Vancouver. Um, 
Mick had a nervous breakdown. We never got paid. There was a huge falling out. Uh, my friend Jamie uh, managed to get Mick back to London before he, you know, harmed himself, basically. And the rest of us thought, well, what do we do now? Uh, we don't have we don't have money to go back to London, but we've got a bit of money uh, from the promoter in Vancouver. So that's when we decided to uh, get on a Greyhound bus to San Francisco. And while we did a few gigs, like we played the Fillmore and other places, but while we did a few gigs in Frisco, uh, Jamie Mandelkow um, was hanging around with Twink. Right. And uh, contacted us and said, you know, you guys fancy getting together and, and forming a band when you finally get back to London. And we thought, that's a great idea. I mean, we had, we had several months in San Francisco basically surviving uh, with no money. And then the um, Seymour Stein uh, got us gigs in Montreal and plane tickets. We went from San Francisco to Montreal, spent the winter in Montreal doing college gigs and saving enough money to actually fly back to London. And then when we got back to London, um, sort of shored up our um, situation with Twink and decided that, you know, Pink Fairies will become the resurrection of the deviants. My God, that's like a film. That's an amazing story. So, well, just so were you touring at that stage, you know, from San Francisco to Montreal as the deviant still, but without Mick? So who was who took vocals on that part of the tour? I did. Ah, blimey, you were there. Did it? Did that come? Did that suit you? Um, it was either sing or it was either <laughs> sing or do or not have a gig. <laughs> oh yes, I go and do some washing up. Yeah, that was it. So you also played on on Twink's kind of solo album as well, Pink Think Pink, didn't you? So did that had that happened before you went over to Canada and the West Coast? No, that was after. Right. Blimey, you were definitely getting around at that stage because the amount of people that, I mean, did you sort of sense a, quite a, a, an amazing community developing around not just yourself, but, you know, the scene? Was it, did you feel like there's quite a scene going on and you were on that trip? Um, there was certainly, certainly I felt there was quite a scene going on and it was just amazing how... Um, you know, you just kind of met people here and there and fell into these different, um, you know, these different situations. Yes. Well, it's amazing because, you know, nowadays we've got the internet, so it's all a bit cheating. But then I was just thinking Seymour Stein. I mean, the great Seymour. I did an interview with Angie Bowie and, you know, she's got lots of stories about those early days when trying to get his career going in the late 60s and you know Seymour Stein seems to appear quite a bit in her conversation so I mean what was I mean he so he must have had great kind of interest and enthusiasm for the next big thing as you know people in the business like to think about it so did he did he know much about this British band from North London? Did who? Seymour Stein. 
you know, basically we ended up uh, uh, getting enough money to actually buy it, buy ourselves out of that contract. Oh, right. Uh, and then, you know, uh, ultimately uh, signed with the, with the Pink Fairies, signed with Polydor Records. Right. So you'd actually done some business when you were sort of over in America. Yeah, well, basically some groundwork anyway. Yeah, that's amazing. So so when you started the Pink Fairies, did that feel quite a refreshing change to the Deviants? Did it feel like, I don't know, having a slightly different gig and starting the game? It was great, yeah. It was refreshing. The two drummers were awesome. And uh, basically we had a lot of um, different kind of musical themes that we would work on uh every gig was different and um you know I, I've, I've always been a huge fan of never playing any song the same everything needs to be different and fresh mm -hmm. so uh we would basically you know sometimes the songs would go on for half an hour but people seem to like it but you know there's band bands that i have uh bands that actually play together um and really there's not that many of them the uh, you know uh cream live in the early days was a a band that actually played together and they were like just you know so spontaneous and good that uh you know it was just something that always appealed to me Yes, well, this is amazing. And did you go to the one of the first Glastonbury festivals as well as with the band? Yeah. So I can't remember. Was the first one nineteen seventy or was that? And then there was seventy one, wasn't there? You did you play at the seventy one festival? I believe seventy one was the one. Like uh, Twink was a friend of of um, Arabella Churchill's, right? Yeah. And and I remember. Uh, Twink telling me about this festival and that she was selling Winston Churchill's dueling pistols to get some money together to get the festival rolling. And I thought, what a great idea this is, you know, <laughs> and got introduced like uh, Twink said, well, let's go earlier to the festival. So the night before the festival actually started, we sat in the little uh ancient chapel on top of glastonbury tour oh the yes the tour and uh you know and and you know twink spent the night explaining the you know the uh, mythology and all the mystic stuff surrounding glastonbury and stonehenge and well yes the the great sort of um the glastonbury was it thorn that um I can't remember somebody from the, 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 the did Jesus go to Glastonbury? There was kind of, um, oh God, there's so much, isn't there? There's King Arthur, there's Jesus, there's everything's thrown in Glastonbury, isn't it? If one, <laughs> and the lines and the, the, the chalice, well, I used to have quite a few friends in Glastonbury and when I was younger, I just wanted to sort of, I wanted to believe it all really and immerse myself, but I just wasn't that much of a hippie, so it just didn't never quite work. But I do remember 
Aramis, oh God, I can't remember. But anyway, somebody came over, they put this stick and it sort of had this hawthorn hedge that grew up in the chapel and it would flower at Christmas or sometime, which was all very exciting. Yes. So were you, had you bought, you know, were you an out and out acid, hippie, rocking, you know, person at this stage? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> in a word it was there so was was most of the band you know because this is the other key part to being in a band did the most of the band take the same type of drug that was quite important wasn't it at that stage yeah that is such a relief good band management you need to be all on the same drugs with the same vision and was it just kind of like the psychedelic kind of rock scene space rock just sort of vibing from the audience Absolutely. Um, you know, the um, really the audience would would be part of the band. Um, you could just feel this energy cycling. And um, um, that was like, you know, that it was almost enough payment just to see people enjoying themselves. Yeah. And, and them actually feeling like they're a part of the thing. Right. Yes, and rather than a bunch of rather than a bunch of puppets on stage playing the, you know, the same number every night the same way. And yeah, absolutely. And did you? What's your memory of the actual festival? If you've, you know, obviously Glastonbury tour the night before, getting the you know cosmic ley lines, the Arthurian legends, kind of wizened through your third eye. So um, yes. So so what was the memory of the festival itself? Uh, the festival was awesome, um, you know, uh, you could just feel it was like a North American bee-in. It was just the feeling of the tribe, people sharing, um, you know, lots of love and, and people sharing food and whatever they had. Uh, and um, just kind of tripping out on all the vibes. That is such a good thing. Was this the one that was um, made into a film and had Terry Reid as one of the kind of main acts in, and Melanie, or was that the previous one, festival-wise? Yeah, I don't think Melanie was there. Like they, you know, the one we did, there was the, in in the film they did of the, of the one we were there, and it's very, uh, uh, obviously a very early and simple film, but there's the, you know, the marching band and uh, lots of people, you know, sitting on the ground in the nude. Convorting. Um, they were definitely convorting, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. That was, yeah, that must be the same film. I can't remember. I think he's quite a famous director, isn't he? But yes, it was one of those ones. I think Terry Reid does play. And I remember somebody came and... Um, some woman singer came and sort of guested with him for a bit. So that was quite something. And then you recorded two albums, Never Never Land and What a Bunch of Sweeties. Was this, was the band in a very honeymoon period at this stage? Uh, Never Never Land, the band was in a, you know, in, in a honeymoon period. Uh, when we did Sweeties, Twink had left. And, um, you know, it, it, Basically, I think things were sort of on the wane by then. By the time, you know, towards the end of the sort of Sweeties period, um, 
was um, probably the start of some people in the band taking different drugs. Mm. And in general in London, it was the start of uh, the heavier drugs in the music scene. It had gone from fluffy to grotty, didn't it, really? Yeah. And, um, you know, I truly credit the, the, the bike riding with keeping my focus on, on softer things and also riding enough. Like, I used to do some pretty good rides, uh, you know, 50 to 75 miles. Um, just that physical aspect, uh, you know, kind of keeping me alive. Yes, well, it's it's a it's a good thing to discover. <laughs> so, when did you discover biking and cycling? This is kind of fascinating because obviously nowadays, you know, it's become quite the thing. But back then, it was kind of yes, it it was. I wouldn't say it was frowned upon, but not many people bikes weren't that great in those days. So, when did your fir- when did your first bike appear in London? Uh, Nineteen sixty nine. Yes, I'd moved from. Uh, moved from the West End to Shepherd's Bush and thought, okay, well, now I'm going to have to either take the bus or whatever. And uh, at that time, I saw so many people in London on bikes, like, you know, nurses, policemen, postmen. I thought, well, geez, if they can do it, I can do it. So I remember I went to my local... um, Fudge's cycle shop on the Uxbridge Road and spent 85 pounds on a Dawes flambeau. I have to say that's a lot of entry level, entry level 10 speed with drop bars, alloy rims. And I thought, oh my God, this is a lot of fun. And basically I got so into it, you know, about six months later, when we actually, you know, we started to actually make a bit of money. Uh, ended up in Condors on Gray's Inn Road, Condor Cycles, because it was the nearest, you know, what I'll call a real bike shop, and bought uh, a racing and a touring bike all Campagnolo equipped. And, you know, that was the start of really getting into it. Mm. So did you um, used to sort of just bike in London or did you occasionally get to put it on the train, go somewhere and then just go touring around other parts of Britain? Uh, No, I would mainly use it around London. Um, And I used to used to when I when I started playing with uh, uh, Brian Eno, his uh, his place was right across from the Paddington cycle track. You know, so we used, used to go to a lot, used to go a lot, ride to a lot of bike races, uh, Hearn Hill, et cetera, et cetera. And when I went, you know, when we had time off from being on the road, which is usually two to three weeks at a time, I'd actually take my, my touring bike and go off around Western Europe. And, you know, sometimes I'd end up in Spain and then I did a lot of cycle trips to Morocco and, my God, that's amazing. You certainly got practice. You certainly could change your puncher as well, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> At this stage, did you just, I know I'm a bit obsessed about the cycling now, aren't I? But did you just have the one, you know, racing touring bike or did you start developing? No, I had, a, I had an out-and-out racing with tubular tires and right. then I had an actual touring bike, which is more specific for 
you know, lower gearing and panniers and stuff. Yeah, my God. So you don't, your, your health must have gone through the roof. Had you stopped smoking at that stage? No, I actually continued smoking till about, ashamedly, uh, uh, probably five or six years ago, I got pneumonia mm -hmm. and thought, okay, I guess it's time to stop the smoking. So I did. Had to be done. Yes. Yeah. Now I just bet. Now I bake. <laughs> <laughs> good idea. Good, good, good. Yes. So then after you did the second album, did you decide you just had enough and, and sort of, as Jim Morrison say, I think it was the end for you and the, the Pink Fairies. Yeah, it just, it just didn't seem, it just didn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, yes. I just needed to change. And you worked, did you do bits with, you know, Uncle Dog and then, you know, with Carol Grimes as well? Well, that's a whole other quick story because I played with Carol Grimes and Uncle Dog. And when we, when we decided, when Carol decided that, you know, Uncle Dog was basically on its last legs. We decided to do our last gig under the motorway in London, where um, Hawkwind and the Pink Fairies had been doing free concerts with the generator. John Porter, who was part of the Roxy Music crew, used to play bass in Uncle Dog. He came to Uncle Dog's last gig outside. And at the end of the gig, because um, he, my old beatnik friend who moved to London was hanging out with John Porter. Uh, and John, at the end of the gig, John said, I'd like to introduce you to somebody. And so we went over to the side of the stage and he says, I'd like, this is Brian Eno. And yeah, we chatted a bit and Brian says, oh, I, I like the way you play bass. How would you like to play on my, my album? And so that was, you know, here come the warm jets. Blimey, that's amazing. It's strange. I've also done an interview with John Porter quite recently because um, it was, well, two reasons. I, there was this kind of very folky jazz kind of acoustic combo in East Anglia called... Um, Iona, I think that was what they were called. It featured a guy called James Lascelles and Mike Story. James Lascelles, he's done a lot of jazzy stuff. But then I noticed it had been produced by John Porter. Then I realized that he won, did a lot of stuff in the 80s, including working on the very first Smiths record. So yes, John Porter, who sort of was, was, I think he accidentally played with Roxy Music on the first album, but didn't really want to. That was... Yeah my memory of it so yeah you met you met the famous john he's a very very dear friend of mine we spent countless nights just listening to music and uh uh at his flat in london and um just hanging out together and uh he also uh hooked me up with doing the first sparks demo sessions with me uh, Mick Taylor and Mike, the drummer from Spooky Tooth. God, that's amazing. Mick Taylor. So had Mick left the Rolling Stones by then? No, he was still with the Rolling Stones. Right. 
God, you know, you knew everybody at this stage, didn't you? You know, you probably couldn't turn a corner without bumping into somebody who was incredibly talented and became famous. <laughs> <laughs> God, that's so many things to think about. Yeah. So, what was it like working with Brian on his um, Warm Jets album? The best. The to 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 date. The because I played on four of his albums. And it was still the most, I think, still the most exciting uh, time of my music career. It was so much fun and so spontaneous and so creative and so artful. And, uh, you know, Brian was just a, just a fabulous human being to, to uh, hang out with. God, you have met some fantastic people, haven't you? You've just really sort of captured some of the great characters of culture and popular music, actually. Yes, amazing. And what was Sparks like with Mick, you know, working with people like Pete um, and also with Mick Tahila, who I must admit, I was very, I loved the albums he did with the Rolling Stones. Uh, well, playing with Mick was, was great because, you know, when you... Um, I think when you get people who play guitar and bass, you know, so I know some purists would say, well, you do one or the other. A good bass player also plays guitar and knows how to back up what a guitarist is doing. So it's very complimentary. Um, you know, it was a very complimentary thing. Yes. Uh, Sparks, I didn't know what to make of, to tell you the truth. To me, it was just, you know, uh, a good session check at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you didn't think they were going to go on to, to the great kind of critical. No. <laughs> critical. <laughs> Did you see any potential in Sparks at that stage? Or do you think, just give me the money, I'm going by? Uh, the potential I saw was, you know, they, the, the, uh, the Mays brothers had a vision and they had quite a good plan and they had an interesting image because certainly at that point in the music business, image was starting to play a very large part in uh, marketing. Yes. And uh, did you, have you, I haven't seen the film. Have you seen the film, but the Sparks film that came out at the end no. of the year? I don't know. Got quite a lot of critical acclaim, but then with, with great enthusiasm, you work with another quite extraordinary maverick as well, which is dear old Robert Calvert, who's, um, so what was that like working with, was this the first time you started meeting members of Hawkwind, by the way? No, because the Pink Fairy, ever, ever, ever since the Pink Fairy started doing gigs, uh, we used to do a lot of gigs with Hawkwind. Yes. And so for the first, you know, first couple of years, uh, Basically, the first the first gig we did with Hawkwind. Uh, who's going to go on first? Well, let's flip a coin, and whoever wins the toss gets to go on last. But then every gig that we did together after that was alternating up until Silver Machine, when they then you know could command more money and you know. Yes, and um, what and did you yes. I do love Lemmy. Do you have any interest in Lemmy moments? What was he like in the early days? He was a great guy. I always got on great with Lemmy. I would imagine. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And for I never had a quid to lend him, but 
<laughs> no, those are, you know, those early gigs, like some of the some of the early gigs, there would be Pink Fairies, Hawkwind, and Pretty Things on the same bill. And at the end of the night, all three bands would be on stage playing together. My God, that must have been a psychedelic rock out, mustn't it? It was it it was verging on madness. Yeah. How did they all keep how did everyone keep it together with so much? excitement and chemicals going around or was it just a case of just I mean at that stage had you were you sort of able to sort of balance these kind of moments you know thinking I need to stay keep it together a little bit while I'm on stage well I mean the I I I think that there was uh, during those I think people were fairly accomplished in their music and uh, realized that, uh, um, you know, I think a lot of people's backgrounds was was playing sparsely. Yes. You know, those those of us who came up through blues and rhythm and blues and stuff, um, play you play very sparsely. It's the yeah. spaces that make the music, and yes. so even with three bands on stage, you know, people were just, you know, kind of holding back and also looking at each other and communicating, right? And if somebody, you know, if you were, if you were kind of playing rhythm guitar and somebody else on a guitar gave you the nod, uh, then it was your turn to do some lead or, you know, people just played together. It's, it's uh, you know, a rarity these days. But in those days, it was a harmonic, 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 cosmic love fest, wasn't it? Let's face yeah. it, it was it was all good. But then, yes. Yeah, so, what was Captain Lockheed, Lockheed and the Starfighters? What was that experience like in the studio and putting that together? That was amazing. Um, most of the material for Captain Lockheed and for Lucky Leaf. I actually co-wrote with Bob. Right. And, you know, I just wanted to play, have fun, get the project going. So never actually, you know, claimed writer's credits or anything like that because, you know, I was getting session fees. Mm -hmm. And um, working with Bob was really interesting because he was basically standing on this very fine tightrope with reality on his left and madness on the right. And he was able to reach into the madness part of things to get ideas, but not fall in. Mm. And he was very, he was very creative. He had some really interesting, I think some really interesting ideas. And if you can imagine the energy, like we were doing sessions at Air Studios, and in the studio, at the same time, Bob Calvert, Arthur Brown, Brian Eno, and George Martin. And I mean, it was like, it was like, it was like being on, on the, the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. And Vivian Stanshaw appears, doesn't he? Yeah. What was Vivian like at that stage? Because I mean, we love, you know, um, so much of his stuff. I never actually met him. 
Sir Henry Rowlandson. Yes. No. Yeah. Arthur Brown was just uh, just awesome, though. His energy. His energy and his singing. Yes. And what about Datmar on on synthesizer? What was his? What was that like working with um, dear old Dale Datmar? I never actually worked with Dell on any of that because he did, he was basically doing overdubs after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, I, have, I have played with Dell in Canada and he actually lives in, in British Columbia, um, several hundred miles away from where I am. Yes, amazing. Yeah, yeah, the only synthesizer person um, I played with that that was playing on on Here Come the Warm Jets was Eno was doing synthesizer and uh, Adrian Shaw. Right, fantastic. So obviously the project went well because Lucky Leaf came out the following year. Was the energy and the spirit, you know, had that been maintained between the between those two projects? The energy had been had been maintained. And I don't think uh, I don't think Lucky Leaf was as well received because I think I think Bob Bob's overall idea was really fantastic, but I don't think it came across on the record. Yes, I mean, did you know it? Yeah, and what was I mean again? Brian Eno is the producer of this, and it also features. Simon House on violin, who also works with David Bowie a bit later. What was, did you get the chance to sort of, you know, play with Simon in the studio or did that sort of come in later in the sessions? Yeah, I didn't play with him in the studio. I mean, I played a lot with him in Hawkwind. Yes, amazing. So was- Great was, person, brilliant musician. I would imagine. So what was Brian like at this stage on, on working in a game? Because obviously he'd gone from, sort of the, the kind of the Roxy music scene to something quite different. It was, it was brilliant. It was, um, it was so spontaneous and creative. Um, Cause I know people have said to me, they said, Oh, that, that's so incredible how that another, you know, another green world was put together. And I'm saying, well, it was all haphazard, right? <laughs> uh, you know, the um, we would get like I remember this one session for another Green World, where there was me, uh, Phil Collins, Percy Jones, um, some other people, and Eno said, "Hey, you guys, I've got these chords. Let's practice these 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 chords." So we practiced these chords for like half an hour. Uh, to get the lay of the land. And then Eno, Eno says, tea break. Okay, everybody had tea break. So we come back in 15 minutes later. And as we walk into the studio, Eno's standing there and he says, okay, everybody now has to play the instrument that they're least familiar with. And we're going to do, do a take on this, this chord sequence. And that's how things went. Uh, you know, some of the sounds he'd come up with, uh, you know, was would be um, plugging things in the wrong way and coming up with these strange, strange ideas that uh, 
nobody nobody would have thought of. My God, that's um, amazing, isn't it? I know he did that with David Bowie's album "Boys Keep Swinging" as well, because he because I think they got to that stage where they just didn't get the kind of sound quite right. So he was like, "Put your instruments down and go to the next one." <laughs> where you're not quite so competent. We want it a bit of a, I suppose, a bit more of a loose, I wouldn't say punky sound, but something that didn't sound quite so polished. And well, there's, a, there's a song on a, Another Green World, uh, I'll Come Running, where we were doing takes. And as we're running through, Eno kept walking out in the studio and taking Phil's cymbals away. And Phil finally said, he said, what are you doing? And he said, you're playing too much. There's too much. I, I need simplicity. Let's take a break. So we decided to take a break. And I said to Eno, I said, I said, I'm not a drummer, but I used to be the drummer in the high school marching band. And I have good timing. And Eno says, oh, what the hell? Let's hear you. So I went and sat behind Phil's drums, put the headphones on. They ran the track. And at the end of that, at the end of the first take, Eno says, that's great, mate. You made yourself another several hundred pounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they were the days, weren't they? What a, what a session. It, it, was, it was about working. It was about working together and bouncing off each other. Yes. Not virtuoso appearances. Amazing. That is, that is quite extraordinary. And then you got the call to take, you know, Lemmy's place in Hawkwind, I guess. Was that was yeah. that a, was that a sort of a, a dream ticket, or were you just kind of rolling with the what was going to come your way cosmically? Yeah, it was just out of the blue. Um, I mean, from having having done so many gigs with Hawkwind, I knew the band and I knew most of the numbers, and I was uh, in between engagements and was sitting at uh, the house we had in <clears throat> Shepherd's Bush. And the phone rang and it was Doug Smith. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just sitting here. What are you doing? He says, oh, I'm on the phone with you. He said, you fancy doing a gig? I said, where? He said, um, Hawkwind's tour. They just landed in the US. They went across the Canadian border and Lemmy got busted and they fired him from the band. So they want you to fly out and, you know, do the first gig on the American tour and it's going to go on for three weeks. And I thought, why not make some money, you know, something yes. to do. And what was it like when you met the band? Were they in a, I mean, because they've been going for a few years and obviously things were getting probably a bit more messy and with Lemmy sort of being fired from the band, what was it like sort of stepping into to the, the rock combo? It was... Uh, very natural, you know, and, and like I knew them all, they knew me, and uh, um, it just seemed to be a, you know, kind of a natural progression in a way. So when you came back, that's when they did their next album, which is Astonishing Sounds, Amazing Music. Yeah, they did Astounding Sounds, and that was... Um, That was a great, that was a great album, but it started to unearth tensions. Yes. You know, that was the first album, I think the first Hawkwind album, where um, 
Dave started to loosen up the reins as to who could write songs and do stuff like that. Yeah. And was it was it mostly to do with songwriting credits or was there other issues going on as well? I, I, I think a lot of it was to do with songwriting credits because the person who writes the songs gets that extra money. <laughs> and, you know, I think it was partially money and partially control. And had uh, uh, Dave Gilmore not been producing that album, uh, I don't think Dave would have loosened, I don't think Dave Brock would have loosened the reins. Right. I think sure. Dave Gilmore thought, no, come on, let, let's just see what happens. Let's, let's, let's at least give it a try. Nice and so one. different members of the band interacted with each other in different ways and different combinations that, you know, um, you know, sort of made something that was, that was different. I think it was different. Yes. And did your, your, your Hawkwind experience, it lasted for a couple of years, didn't it? Yeah. And then why did you, why did you sort of leave the band? In, um, towards the end of the uh, second year, uh, the different drugs were creeping into that band. Yes. Band went to record uh, Quark, right? So we all went down to to the studio in Wales to record Quark. Oh, was that Rockfields? Yeah. And mm. in infighting developed as to who was going to do what. Everybody was doing some pretty strange drugs. So and there was some animosity building up. And basically, uh, you know, people were just basically fighting. And at the end of it, like after Quark was recorded, and myself, Alan Powell, and Nick got called into Tony Howard's office, the manager, and said, Dave's really upset with, you know, the way the things were going in the studio. And he wants you guys to apologize for your behavior or you're being kicked out of the band. And we basically said, fuck you. We're not <laughs> apologizing to anybody. And Dave was so angry, he erased all of our tracks off Quark and got studio musicians in, except for one number, which was Hassan Isaba. Right. You could play the guitar like I did on it because I wrote it with Bob Calvert. My God, that's that's kind of a messy end, isn't it? That was not a good one. So what were the on the drug front? I mean, how was you know, I'm you know, I mean what was what was the sort of vague division between the bands? You mean the drug divisions? Yes. Well, the you know, I think when people were smoking. It was things were things were not a problem. Yeah. But for instance, with Quark, there was uh, cocaine going on, and um, you know, I had a, a brief bout with it myself, which I still, you know, still uh, uh, wish I hadn't have. But it was getting to be really big in London. 
And uh, I remember going into a studio once and everybody was doing coke. And we laid down what we thought was this fantastic music and listening to it the next day, it sounded like everybody was in their own soundproof booth without headphones on. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's a good way to put it. It was totally, uh, um, uh, I don't know, I think a, a self-centering kind of drug. It was not, not conducive to the, the hippie way of life. No, dance, yeah. Did you, I mean, with, with that, that experience with Hawkwind, did you, did you meet many of the members after that to, uh, I don't know, calm the waters or to, you know, heal the, the rift? Uh, certainly with, with Simon King, Alan Powell, uh, Nick Turner, uh, yes. Um, but not with, uh, um, not with Dave Brock. Yes. Has that, has, was that just kind of a, a massive moment in the Hawkwind history of the band that things were just going to be different from then on? Yeah. Yeah. It was basically the, you know, people, a, 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 some of the members were looking upon uh, Dave as being the tyrant, the dictator. Yeah. God. Does, do, and there was do, a lot of stuff going on too with, uh, you know, as Hawkwind's popularity increased. So did the length of their riders for the gigs. So it got to a point where the band, you know, uh, couldn't, wasn't requesting, uh, you know, 12 beers and some sandwiches. It was specific brands of wine and brandy and a lot of, st a lot of this stuff that was never consumed at the gigs, but was going to people's homes, you know, and so I, you know, I, I, I think I made myself somewhat unpleasant by saying, you guys, you know, at a gig once I said, you guys look at all this stuff. There's hundreds of pounds of stuff here that we're paying for it. And somebody said, oh, we're not paying for it. The promoter is paying for it. I said, no, 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 <laughs> we're paying for it. <laughs> and I don't That's think we should be. No, that that person didn't understand the many business, did they really? That was a bit naive on their part. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was this, this, this kind of greedy element creeping in. Yes. Was it, was it then? A, so how did you get then you, you work with Mick again, Farron, for an EP? What was that? Um, was that a nice, for about want of a better word, experience meeting him again after the, the sort of period where he has his breakdown? That was great, actually. Uh, you know, um, we kind of reconnected, Larry Wallace was producing and, uh, it was such a good experience. And I, even though I don't have a record player, I still have that record, but that song we did called screwed up, which I co-wrote with Mick, uh, I, I have redone with Alan Davey and we're putting it on this uh, LP, which is almost finished for Cleopatra Records. Fantastic. Cleopatra. God, everyone loves Cleopatra nowadays. They seem very popular, don't they? So so then you work with Brian Eno for another two before and after Science and Music, Music for Films. So is that, with going back to him after the Hawkwind experience, was that kind of like 
a bit of creative sanity. Oh, it was it was creative heaven. <laughs> it was really cool. Yes, dear old Brian. I mean, at that stage, I suppose he had been starting to work with David Bowie as well, hadn't he? He hadn't started to work with Bowie then, but uh, you know, you know, Ina was a real innovator. Um, we had such a great engineer at Island Studios. And, uh, you know, I remember one day, uh, Eno had been, been investigating tape loops. And he said to the engineer, because we were in the upstairs Island, Island Studio, the bigger of the two. And in one, in one thing, we had milk bottles set up like milk bottles filled with water set up at different points around this big control room running a, a tape loop a th about 30 feet around the room from one <laughs> machine onto the other right yes and the engineer going well we, this isn't going to work you know says trust me if it doesn't work it doesn't matter but we got to try stuff and so we were kind of fiddling around with backwards and forwards and it was it was really cool. Nice. Oh my God, that was so. Yeah, because kind of I know he then went to New York and started getting involved with the punk scene quite soon and working with bands from the CBGB scene and also helps set up a studio in New York with a guy called Martin Bisi who who was um, there with Bill Laswell in the early eighties and and this guy Martin was a really young guy who just started this studio and he said you know Brian was just so generous you know he would. He'd invite me over for tea, but he was so kind of young and shy that he sort of was like, I don't think I could be in the same room as Brian. But, you know, Brian was just <laughs> really, you know, like really encouraging. You know, he said, you know, no, you know, so he, uh, he, Brian was an incredible facilitator. Yeah. And and that curiosity of going from, you know, that scene that you were in the Roxy Music and then going to New York, working with all these kind of quite avant-garde sort of punk bands or post-punk bands is, um, yeah, it's quite a credit because most people don't keep the energy and vision, you know, they kind of get a bit bored, stale, you know, they lose the plot. So then what happens to you sort of as this sort of 70s progresses on, you know, and, and we get into the next decade? Well, what were, were you still based in London at this stage? Uh, I was in London up until like basically 1979. I wasn't doing anything. I was doing very little. And uh, my old beatnik friend um, had left a full-size bus he had made into a camper on the campground in Malaga in the south of Spain. So basically, I went there for almost a year. Mm -hmm. And then uh, had arranged to come back up to London to, to do more recording with Mick. And so I came back up to London from Malaga to discover that somebody had forgotten to let me know that all the sessions had been cancelled. And I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Because I didn't have a place to live. Most of my stuff was in storage. And I just thought at that time, oh, what the heck, I'll, I'll move back to Vancouver and, you know, see what's going on there. So that's what I did. Yes, God. And did you, and during that period, did did your cycling passion continue all through the seventies? Yeah, 
Right through. Nice one. So then back in Vancouver, the 80s, you miss you miss the glorious Thatcher period in the UK with the um, Falkland War and Green and Common, the minor strike, Red Wedge so, and the poll tax. So, yeah. So do, do you then sort of continue your music kind of life in Vancouver or do you get another sort of side hustle? Uh, I had to get a side hustle because when I left London, all my my equipment was being shipped uh, via ocean, so nothing. I wasn't going to have anything until three months down the road. Uh, the only equipment I had with me was my uh, Synthi AKS synthesizer, um, and I needed to do something to make some money. And I happened to be thought, what the hell am I going to do? There was Nobody I really, you know, had been in contact in the music scene there. And I was out riding my bike thinking, what am I going to do? And I happened to stop at this bike store. Um, and I walked in and met uh, an English guy. He was an ex-10 year British track pro who uh, had just opened a bike store. And I, I knew a fair amount about bikes, but I, you know, I wanted to, was always wanted to uh, like working on stuff and fixing things. And he said, you know, do you know a lot about bikes? I says, well, I ride them a lot. I know a lot about British bikes. And he says, well, he could sense my passion. So he said, I'll give you a job and teach you how to, you know, be a bike mechanic and sell things. Mm. So I started working for him, you know, he said, oh, Jesus, mate, you make a good cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I did that for a year. And then he actually went out of business. Uh, and then I went to a different bike store, you know, um, and worked in the bike business. And in the year two, 2000, beginning of 2000, um, after having undergone uh cancer treatment decided to move back to gibson's where i grew up and i opened my own bike store which i ran for 12 years and then sold it and moved to victoria and worked in a bike store in victoria for seven years and then when covid hit i just retired yes god blimey that's a fantastic story so and and sort of the base the guitar you know, they're just kind of parts of your weekends and evenings. Well, actually, uh, you know, the when COVID hit, I, I used to be married, but when COVID hit, uh, my wife just wasn't keen on me being home 24-7 and decided it'd be better if we consciously uncoupled. So uh, I decided to move out. And now I live in a in a one bedroom loft condo. So upstairs is a bedroom and bathroom and washer and dryer. Mm -hmm. And just in front of where I'm sitting is a complete 32 track digital recording studio with amps, drums, mics, synthesizers, five keyboards, all sorts of stuff. And that, that's what I've been doing, you know, particularly for the last few years. I do it every night. And uh, um, Alan and I did one album in, in Austin, 
this one we're doing remotely. And then once this is done, then I'm going to, um, I've just bought myself a guitar synthesizer and uh, some more equipment, uh, even though I don't have room for it. And then we're going to work on a, you know, a real space rock album that's wild. Fantastic. This is Alan Powell. Alan Davy. Alan Davy, God, why didn't... Yes. Although Alan Powell's in California as well. Davy, right. But so Alan then... Davy and I uh, and Lucas uh, really gelled together when we met uh, for the first time in Austin several years ago. Had they been, God, I'm getting lost here. Had they been ever in Hawkwind, those two? Alan Davy was in Hawkwind for 20 years. Yes, people kill me for that. Yes, and what about <laughs> Lucas? Uh, well, Lucas, aside from being the uh, original Motorhead drummer, um, I, I never really heard that much about him or met him. And when we met up for to start doing... Uh, you know, the Residence, Resident Reptiles album in Austin, we all just gelled together like crazy. So Lucas is doing the drums on this latest project. Fantastic. So you're basically a three-piece space rock band. And do you, and, and, and you're, and, uh, you know, is, is sort of writing the music still as easy as it was back 40 years ago? No, it's a lot harder because, you know, in, in what we'll call the old days, people would, everybody would just get together and play and discuss ideas and stuff in real time. Yes. We're doing it back and forth is incredibly time consuming. Like I did most of the writing, songwriting for this album we're doing right now. Alan's contributed a few songs, but as I said to Alan, well, I've probably spent thousands of hours doing this, you know. And in the old days, it would have just been so much easier, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, you'd get you get in the studio with everybody, with a good engineer and a good producer, and you know, a couple of days later, you've got an album done. Blimey. Whereas here, you know, it's it's working on ideas and, you know, then you send it off and Alan says, well, maybe we should try something different in this spot. And then you're, you know, and even though I have digital recording, I'm a big fan of things called knobs and faders, yes. things you actually touch. So uh, I like I like a continuous performance. So if I'm doing a guitar overdub, and I, you know, and, and it's not what I want or I make a wrong note, I just go back to the beginning and do it again. You know, it's because so it's, yes. it's play. To me, it's playing. And do you, and um, and this, is this release coming out on Cleopatra Records? Or was that? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Who are based in LA, aren't they? Yeah. So when's, when, when's, you, when's hopefully the release going to be? Uh, I would imagine, you know, once uh, Lucas does his, I imagine the, the release is going to be this summer. It's going to be called Resident Reptiles. Oh, I'll make a note. And uh, make sure to send me your uh, address 
because I'll get Cleopatra to send you a, a copy. Oh, fantastic. God, we love that. I mean, your your life is amazing. I mean, do you, did did they look, kind of hopefully, did you um get the all clear on your cancer? Yeah. That is even better news. I had cancer five years ago, six years ago. And it's always a relief, isn't it? You have those. Do you get regular scans and checkups and stuff like that afterwards? Um, the uh, I got PSA tests after. Like when I um, when I got my treatment in 1999, uh, my stage and grade was such that I got a treatment, you know, from the 30s called brachytherapy, where they in they put 120 radioactive titanium pellets right into the tumor in your prostate mm, yeah. so you don't actually get your prostate taken out and you know my doctor every year just does the finger test and so far so good that's amazing oh well done well you know i just was thinking you know my my sixth anniversary was coming up and i was thinking well seems what like did you long. have uh, it was kidney cancer but um oh, i was shit. Yeah, <laughs> but luck. I mean, it was kind of weird because it was kind of it picked up really at kind of by almost accident by looking at one thing and having a test, and then and they went, "Oh, actually, what we were looking at is fine, but we found something else." And it's, but you better come in next month. And um, it was kind of fingers crossed, but you know, you still have those yearly scans, and you still kind of have that bit of anticipation. But you know, you just have to, you know dodge these things don't you and um yeah just feel lucky that uh, you know you're walking and talking if they hadn't picked it up one wouldn't be here so um yeah, yeah. it's a it's a weird world but yes the conversations you can have when you get older are quite different to ones you had when you were younger yeah. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly you look at hospital appointments and doctor's appointments you know in the old days it would be going to gigs wouldn't it but now you yeah you're sort of working out where to go at the norfolk and norwich hospital and um yes well anyway well done us good luck and um so look just last i mean if you could have said something to uh, like it say your 16 say your 16 year old self or 18 um you know you could have just whispered something in their ear to say you know with all the experience and wisdom and and things you've discovered i knew i know your 16 year old self might have not wanted to listen but would there have been something that you've just thought there's a couple of bullet points that i've kind of figured out being on this planet for the last 60 70 years well when i was 16 i think i was 16 when the local beatnik poet and writer pete the poet he was called uh took let some of us into his little cabin in gibson's he was known as mumbles because Apparently, he used to smoke pot and give poetry readings, but he was so stoned, he always mumbled. <laughs> and we always thought he was cool, even though we weren't sure what a beatnik was, because he was older. But I remember sitting in his place, the first time I ever smoked some, some weed, and him saying, remember, he said, always do your own thing. Don't be afraid what other people think. Do your own thing. Do what speaks to you. And 
it, that that was another kind of pivotal point in in thinking you know um other people i knew in bands you know most most people in bands at that time they were all copy bands so they're top 40 bands and it uh the illuminate the illuminating part of what he said to me i thought you know i've never interested in playing anybody else's music i'd rather listen to rather listen to raw even if it's poorly recorded <laughs> raw talent with people just expressing themselves you know yes and um and that was it for me Yes, good old, good old Pete the poet mumbles. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And what did your? I mean, during that period of the seventies, especially, what did your, you know, parents, you know, think when you went? Look, I've got another album on. Oh, I've got another band. Did, were they kind of? Oh, and I'm in in London. Were they impressed? Uh, my mum was because she loved music, and you know she was slightly crazy from PTSD from being a second world war nurse in the front lines over in europe blimey but uh um she liked it and you know also when i was 16 and started to grow my hair uh my dad who was a captain of a kilted regiment in the second world war did not like the long hair and he didn't really like the electric guitar either and he let me know in no uncertain terms how embarrassing i was to to the neighbors you know <laughs> <laughs> but did he like think well you've done pretty good so after seeing you know by 1980 was he impressed no such a shame yeah he never uh you know i think i think um uh, when I told him I was, you know, as soon as I finished high school, I said, I'm moving out of the house. I need to, you know, go to the city and actually play some music and stuff. Oh, good luck, you know, begrudgingly wishing me good luck. And, yes. you know, my mom thought it was just great. Oh, well, well done, your mom. Yes. <laughs> I'm already warming to her. Anyway, I'm a, I mean, it's probably a really ridiculous thought, but is there one particular album, you know, you think when you look back, you think, yeah, that that's that would be the one that I'm really proudest of. It does sound like you're going to say Another Green World, actually, but I just wondered, because, I mean, or do you feel like that body of work that you were part of all just is wonderful? I think, you know, Another Green World and Music for Films which was totally spontaneous. I mean, that was just outtakes. Um, and um, I like some of the stuff that happened on, I like some of the early Pink Fairy stuff for its, you know, its punkability, you know, cause it was kind of like, you know, um, a sort of genre of music that uh, even Johnny Rotten said, wow, those guys were awesome. <laughs> and there's some of the stuff we, from uh, uh, Astounding Sounds, I thought, was was really good. So, you know, quite innovative and, you know, different. Yeah, well, I'm really curious to hear. I must admit, it's going to be copped at Captain Lockheed that I'm going to be very curious to have a listen to with more concentration. I was... Uh, 
uh, chuffed to see over the, uh, you know, over the, the last years, a lot of Hawkwind's live set numbers are all songs from Captain Lockheed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, I, I guess during this kind of lockdown, lock and all this, and, and plus, you know, Spotify, which I know is a sort of double-edged sword, but, you know, you must get a lot of people who are discovering the music you have been part of, you know, who are sort of just kids, aren't they? Well, it, it, it's amazing in a way because the, um, I actually, in the last couple of years, got more royalties yes. from stuff from the 70s than I ever got in the 70s. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm pleased to hear that's such a nice story, <laughs> you know. I'm always amazed. How did that, that world is just baffling. I mean, how do they, A, track you down? Do you have to sort of keep your contact details up to date? And how do they kind of know? Is it to do with publishing? And It's to do with publishing. Like uh, in uh, London, there's the PRS, Performing Rights Society which started off as a publishing company. And then they partnered up with MCPS, which is mechanical royalties from actual record sales. Mm -hmm. So I've got it all under one roof. And like all the songs that I write, I register them with the PRS. And then they just collect all the money and send it. God, that's fantastic. I'm so pleased. Wow. Is it looking and when I say when I say all the money, keep in mind it's gone from you know hundreds of pounds to uh, sorry we're not paying out anything under fifty pounds you know uh, in, in this six month period but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, and look, good luck on the next release with Cleopatra Records. That sounds fantastic. But um, yes. This has been fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you ever so much for all this. I've been really pleased. And if you want, I can always send you a link to the, you know, this, and you can always put it on your, you know, website or your Facebook page, which would be Yeah, great. I do so. I'll put it on my Facebook page. I don't actually have a website. No, but um, good luck on the band. Now, you probably have said it's the album's going to be called Resident Reptiles. What's the band name? No, the, the, the new album's going to be called Screwed Up screwed up after the song that i co-wrote with mick Farron. yes and the band are called pink fairies oh right god so oh, basically we're doing we're doing pink fairies because the pink fairies aren't doing anything yeah good so what so okay sorry what's the resident reptiles that's the one we did uh three years ago with cleopatra Right. Got you. It's good to know. Well, look, this is fantastic. I'm going to have to go and do lots of more research. Now, won't I? Anyway, look, thank you very much. I'm going to go to bed now. But um, look, amazing, amazing story and amazing life. So, um, and you're still rocking. We're still rocking. So thanks ever so much, Paul. And look, have a great evening, afternoon and um, I'll keep in touch anyway. Yeah, do so. Send, send me your address so I can get you, the, get you a copy of the Screwed Up. Yes. And feel feel free to contact me anytime. I'm retired, so I'm just, you know, here all the time, unless I'm out for my uh, two-hour, you know, scenic bike ride. 
Oh, good. God, that's good. I know we're all we're all sort of out there doing it. Have you still got a racer? Oh, no, I sold. I sold the. I sold my last. I had a really nice giant racing bike, and I actually sold it two years ago because it was just just getting too uncomfortable to ride because of my uh, uh, my polio arm. Yeah. So yes. Anyway, electric bikes—they're the future. Well, you still get a workout, but you don't have to struggle up the hill, which is, you know, just makes it more doable for me. Yeah, no, it's going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace it when it happens. I'm not, being on two wheels is always the best. Anyway, look, thanks a lot. And um, I'll let you go on. But anyway, take care and all the best. All right. Same to you, David. Thank you. Ever Cheers. Bye-bye. So bye. And that was me in conversation with Paul Rudolph. Um, yes, you've heard it all. So, um, yeah, if you want to know any more information, Google, that's the way to do it. And uh, there is bits and pieces about the... Um, about his life in music on the website and also hopefully some new releases on Cleopatra Records. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastor. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. You should find me lurking somewhere in the shadows. Also, all these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Um, these are on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Podbean, there you go. So um, if you're interested, this it's all there. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.